Welcome to The View from the North Curve, a podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic. I'm your host, Kev. I'm joined by Tony, as usual. And like last time around, we're joined by a lot of our membership from the Curve who've logged in online to watch another live episode. So I'm going to try my hardest again not to make an arse of this. So a big thanks to all you guys on the now and a big thanks to everybody for tuning in again when the podcast is out. Last time around, we had Ronnie Close on with us. Ronnie spoke about his book, Cairo Ultras, Egyptian fan culture and the history of a revolution in Egypt. And then there it's, you know, no gave that a listen, really should, as Ronnie was superb. And this time, we are pleased to welcome on John Reid. Thankfully, it's not the one the user are probably thinking of, but John is on to speak about Michael Davitt and Celtic, the Fenians, socialism, the Land League and international impact. So just big thanks, John, for taking the time, mate. It's, it's much appreciated to come on and speak with us. Uh, Tony, how are you, bud? All good? Yeah, I'm all good. Doing well, mate. Thank you. Um, so... Tonight's talk's kind of been one that's it's been a long time coming. It's something that's been spoke about for as far back as the group's been doing any kind of political education nights. Um, and with it approaching 130 years since Michael David laid the centre sod at Celtic Park, then there's not really any better time to do it. Um, as people will know, Michael David's a name that's always came up with in regards to Celtic and Republican history or the political side of it. It's a name that's kind of synonymous with Celtic in that respect. But there's not too much known about it apart from being in the Irish Republican Brotherhood and when the, the first saw that Celtic part and being a regular visitor in the, the kind of early years. So we've got John on. It's great to see you on here, John. And you're the you're involved in running the David Museum. Is that, that right, mate? That's right. I'm a historian here, Tony, at the, at the Michael Davitt Museum. And thanks very much to yourself and Kevin for inviting me on tonight. So what we were going to do, John, was just let you take the floor, mate. Um, and at the end, if you do your talk and then at the end of it, if anybody's got any questions, we'll just do it like that and just let you go from there. Yeah, that sounds fine to me, Tony, yeah. Michael Davis, well, he was born in Strayed, County Mayo, in 1846, and that was just at the onset of the Great Famine, or the Great Hunger, indeed, as many people refer to it. And of course, at this time, the entire island of Ireland was under British rule, and the land was owned by a few thousand landlords, most of them English or Anglo-Irish, and many of them, indeed, absentee. So the native Irish were mere tenants on those landlords' estates. Now, Michael Davitt, he was born into grinding poverty. He was the son of a poor tenant farmer. And paying rent to the landlord was, you know, problematic at the best of times. But when the potato crop failed, it became impossible. And they were evicted from their small holding in the autumn of 1850. Now, the family made their way to the workhouse in the neighboring town of Swinford, but they were not to remain there 
very long because there was a great shame and stigma associated with having to enter the workhouse and it was a haven of disease. Children over the age of three were separated from their parents. So Michael's mother, she wouldn't countenance any of this and it was her who decided that instead they would immigrate. And you know, the problem was then they had no money but luckily a neighboring family were immigrating at the same time and they had a horse and cart so both families kind of clambered aboard this cart and traveled to Dublin and when they got to Dublin the horse and cart was sold so both families then had the price of the passage to Liverpool and after that the Javit family actually walked the 50 miles from Liverpool to Haslington which was in northeast Lancashire. So a very difficult start to their new life. Now from the age of nine, Michael was working in the town's textile mills. And at the age of 11, he lost his right arm in a factory accident, which must have been incredibly traumatic. But this at least allowed him to avail of an education. And he was taught at a Wesleyan college by the Methodists for four years. And you know, here he mixed with students from all denominations and none. And it made him realize that the working classes needed to stick together and not allow the wealthy to divide them in terms of, of religion. And he also studied in the library of the Mechanics Institute in the town. Again, this was a place of radical ideas. And we think he got his love of journalism here because he had access to international newspapers and books. And we also know that he attended lectures delivered by the Chartist leader, Ernest Jones. And this was interesting because it was the first time he heard an Englishman who was sympathetic to Irish independence and who was anti-landlordism. And I think David liked the idea of a social charter where everyone would have the right to a vote and a house and a job. Now, David himself, he worked for a period in a post office and printers, but by his late teens, and by the way, with the full approval and support of his parents, he joined the Fenians. So of course, the Fenians were an oath-bound organization dedicated to the establishment of an Irish Republic by force of arms. And if you look at David's background, I mean, he had strong anti-establishment views because of his life experiences. His father, in fact, was involved in agrarian activities against landlords way back in the 1830s attacking their property and such like. And often he had to flee to England for a few months from the authorities until things settled down. And he often told the story about one such time he had to go to England. Um, he woke up in London one morning, heard a great commotion outside and realized it was the coronation of Queen Victoria in 1837. So he often told this story to his amused, I think, Irish neighbors in Haslington. But to get back to Michael Davis again, you know, Fenianism was very strong in the Irish community in Lancashire and Yorkshire. And it was almost a natural progression for him to join the Fenians, just as many of his friends and neighbors had already done so. But at a very young age, Michael Davis had showed leadership qualities because when he was a teenager, a mob attacked the local Catholic church in Haslington and newspapers reported that a youth with one arm and a gun arrived on the scene, fired shots 
over the heads of the crowd and dispersed them. So he was a very good recruit for the Fenians. He was highly intelligent. He was well-spoken with no obvious Irish accent. He was a good organizer. He was discreet. He was highly committed. At the age of only 20, he had led a detachment of Fenians for an attack on Chester Castle. And they had hoped to overpower those guarding the castle, seize the arms and transfer them to Ireland. And you know this was in February 1867, and an unsuccessful Fenian rising did take place in Ireland in March 1867. Now, however, Davitt's particular operation was compromised by a spy, but nevertheless, he managed to get everyone back to Haslington safely, which again marked him out as a future Fenian leader. So unsurprisingly, he was promoted and he became the Fenian representative for the North of England and Scotland. And his main task was organizing arms shipments to Ireland. And he was in contact with all the Fenian circles in his area. Um, circles were the way that Fenian teams were organized at that time. But eventually he was arrested at Paddington Station in London in 1870, where he was awaiting a delivery of arms. And he was sentenced to 15 years hard labor at the Old Bailey that July. Now he ended up serving over half of this sentence, mainly in the bleakness of Dartmoor and Dartmoor prison. So if you can envisage the situation, you've got a man with a disability and he's breaking stone all day long. He's hauling carts of stone back and over the prison yard, day in, day out, week in, week out. And of course, the very idea of the Victorian prison system was that you would break the spirit of the Fenians, but this never happened with Michael Davis. And I think as he said himself, he emerged from prison a far greater threat to the British Empire than when he went in. And when he was released on probation, he arrived back in Dublin. Uh, he was in the accompaniment of three of his Fenian comrades who had been released and thousands of people greeted them. But one of the Fenians, his name was Charles McCarthy. He was extremely weak. And unfortunately he died the following morning in the hotel in Davitt's Davids very presence. And Davitt, as was his way, agreed to arrange his funeral and tens of thousands attended his funeral procession to the last Nevin Cemetery. But at that time, no church would accept the remains of a Fenian. But eventually the Carmelite church in Clarendon Street agreed to receive it. And when Davis was in his final hours, many years later, his instructions were that he too would be laid out there and his wishes were duly adhered to. So in the, the late 1870s and early 1880s, Michael Davis was on the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. But he did leave the organization once you get the emergence of the Land League. And I suppose the Land League is an interesting organization. Uh, and one consequence of it was that it split the Fenian movement. There were some Fenians who thought, you know, this is a great idea. If the tenant farmers can get their land back first, this is a stepping stone on the road to independence. Whereas other Fenians thought, no, this is a bad idea. If the farmers get their land, they'll be happy under British rule and they won't seek 
independence. But I think it's fair to say Davos was also beginning to disagree with Fenian strategy in the 1880s because they were engaged in a bombing campaign in England and there were civilian deaths and so on. Michael Davitt never wanted that. He just wanted to take the British on in the field of battle. He didn't want any civilian involvement whatsoever. And of course, he was exploring other methods of achieving his aims in relation to Irish independence and other issues. So for many years then, he had, I suppose, a poor enough relationship with the Fenians, but he came back into the fold during his latter years. And Michael Davitt had been a member of parliament but he famously resigned his seat and in his speech departing the House of Commons in 1899, he again advocated physical force as the way forward. And his last years were characterised by Davos going around raising money for Fenians who had fallen on hard times. And he was also a pallbearer at the funeral of one of the Fenian founders, James Stevens. So I think it's fair to say that Davos had a long and evolving relationship with the physical force tradition. So we, we mentioned the Land League there. And of course, again, you know, David had experience of land and eviction. And when he did return to Ireland again in the late 1870s, he undertook a tour of the countryside. He consulted widely. And eventually a large land demonstration was organized and held at Irishtown. Now, this was a village on the County Mayo, County Galway border. It was in April 1879. Now, it was a tremendous success, and it was quickly followed by another meeting in Westport, County Mayo. Now, this meeting, while it was also a success, it's very significant because Michael Davis and Charles Stuart Parnell shared a platform for the first time. And Parnell, of course, was the foremost politician in Ireland at this time. Now, within weeks of this meeting, the Land League of Mayo was established, which very shortly afterwards became the National Land League. And of course, the, the principal aim of the Land League was to banish the landlords and to return the land to the ordinary people, the people who had tilled the soil for generations. And in the meantime, of course, they wanted to help improve conditions for the tenant farmers so the National Land League was actually founded in October 1879, and it was agreed it would be non-violent in nature. Uh, Parnell became president, and Davis preferred to take on the role of secretary, and hundreds of branches were set up around the country. Money flooded in from the Irish abroad. Davis, you know, he tirelessly crisscrossed the country in order to address meetings and to promote the aims of the league. And by passive resistance, they sought to prevent evictions and negotiate reductions in rent. Humanitarian aid would be provided for those who were evicted. And David's agitation on the ground combined with Parnell's advocacy in the House of Commons, I think it turned the Land League into a formidable organization. Now, one interesting tactic the Land League adopted was the boycott. And the word boycott derives from the case of a Captain Charles Boycott. And he was a land agent for a landlord, a Lord Ern. And the estate was near Loch Mass in South County Mayo. Now, Boycott evicted three tenants. So the Land League ran a campaign of exclusion against him. 
Local workers refused to acknowledge him or serve him in shops. But more importantly, they refused to harvest his crops. A boycott was forced to bring in dozens of orangemen from the Cavan Monaghan area. Now they had to be escorted by over a thousand soldiers and it cost 10,000 pounds in total to save his crops. A lot of money back in 1880. And a boycott was thereafter threatened on any person occupying the farm of an evicted tenant. Now, the agitation continued for a number of years, but eventually the Land League was outlawed and Michael Davis and indeed the other leaders were arrested. Now, Davis was interned for 15 months in Portland prison in Dorset. This was during 1881 and 1882. But Davis had anticipated his own arrest and at his instigation, a ladies land league was set up. And this was very ably led by Anna Parnell, who was a sister of Charles Stewart. And the president of the ladies land league was Anne Dean. And she's buried within 20, 30 yards of Michael Davis in the cemetery in Strait behind the Michael David Museum. So the Ladies' Land League, they've done much more than just kind of keep the show on the road while the male leaders were in prison because it was the first time really that women got involved in politics in Ireland. And uh, they kind of cut their teeth, you might say. They were young, middle-class women. They cut their teeth in the Ladies' Land League and then many of them went on to be suffragettes some of them joined independence movements leading up to 1916, such as Indiana Heron and Cumann the Mon. And the role of women in the Land League and indeed in Irish history in general is an area that's often neglected and I think deserves more attention in general. So I suppose, you know, what was the outcome of the Land League and what were the results and the legacy? And I think the agitation forced the British government into significant concessions in the early 1880s. Land courts were set up to decide on what constituted a fair rent and leases were extended. Many of the poorer tenants had their arrears written off and from the mid 1880s onwards, land acts were passed in the House of Commons, which in effect transferred the land from the landlords to the tenants. But Michael Davis, well, he was not entirely happy with the outcome because landlords receive compensation and tenants had to apply for loans in order to buy their holdings. So I think he disagreed with Parnell's analysis of the situation and felt that the agitation should have continued. But nevertheless, the outcome was a considerable achievement at a time when the British Empire was at the height of its powers. And today in Ireland, by and large, the tillers of the soil own their own land, and this is due in a large measure, I think, to the work of Michael Davitt. And the success of the Land League, it definitely helped pave the way for the independence movement that followed in the decades ahead. So it was very important in that respect as well. So I think when there was a resolution, or a resolution of sorts to the land issue in Ireland, Michael Davitt kind of turned you know, his attention to international affairs and international themes. But I think one overarching theme throughout his life is, is socialism. And again, I suppose I keep returning to it. We're, we're all products of our environment and, you know, poverty and eviction 
It gave him a burning resentment and an unquenchable thirst for social justice. The loss of an arm as a child laborer in the, in the Lancashire cotton mills, for which, by the way, no compensation was ever paid, gave him an insight into the problems facing the working classes. And we've already referenced his time in the Mechanics Institute, where he read and developed radical views and his Methodist education, where he studied with working class children from all backgrounds. But the Land League itself is often described as Ireland's first large trade union. And I think it definitely had that masses against the classes feel to it. And they took on the establishment, be it landlords, employers or government. You know, you had membership cards, subscriptions, local branches, area organizers, mass meetings, banners, marching bands. I think all this kind of, you know, conjures up a trade union style vision. And by the mid 1880s, Davis was very much involved in advocacy. For example, in 1885, he wrote a series of newspaper articles where he lamented the poor housing in Dublin, the decline of industry in the city, and the poor educational opportunities available to the working classes. And he was elected as a councillor in Dublin to pursue that agenda. But Davis also looked across the sea and he was a regular visitor to Scotland throughout his life, but he undertook two major tours, one in 1882, the other in 1887, where he, and he was often in the accompaniment of Care Hardy, another great labor leader, they addressed various, not only Irish, but kind of working class radical crowds in the various towns and cities in Scotland. And his 1887 tour incorporated the tour of the Highlands, which we'll mention a little bit later on. Now, Davis as well, he was one of the main speakers at a massive labor demonstration in Hyde Park, London in 1887. And during the 1880s, he campaigned in England, Scotland and Wales for socialist candidates at election time. He also availed of an opportunity to forge links with various miners associations throughout the United Kingdom and the miners in turn were great supporters of the Land League back in Ireland. Now Davis, he also went to the United States and he addressed 30,000 people. He was one of the speakers, one of the principal speakers uh, at this particular demonstration. It was in Union Square, New York in September 1882 and it became known as and is still known as Labor Day in America. So while Davis was in America, he actually joined an American trade union. They were called the Knights of Labor. And up until this point, you know, you mostly had craft unions who dealt with skilled workers. So kind of unions themselves were kind of exclusive. But the Knights of Labor, they welcomed unskilled workers. They also welcomed women and minorities. And they had a kind of a global aspect to them, which I think would have appealed to Michael Davis as well. And Davis actually worked as an organizer in the Midlands in England for them for a period. Now, a good few years later in 1890, Michael Davitt founded his own trade union. This was in Cork and it was called the Irish Democratic Trade and Labour Federation. And it was for agricultural and industrial laborers. And Davitt proposed the establishment of the Irish Trade Union Congress, which occurred in 1894. Now, as time went on in the 1890s, David's services as a mediator were sought. 
and he famously acted as a mediator to settle many disputes in both Ireland and England, I suppose most notably the Liverpool Dockers strike of 1890. And in Ireland, um, he helped settle strikes involving the Dublin Builders Labourers Trade Union, the Tramways Union and the Railway Union to varying degrees of success, I suppose it should be said. But I think he was always felt it was important that the union kind of stood together and you know got whatever concessions they could. Now, as you can see, he was a busy man and he also founded a socialist newspaper in London. It was called Labour World and it sold 60,000 copies a week initially. And it not only featured labour issues, it also had um, articles on Celtic Football Club and the GAA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, which of course is our indigenous games here in Ireland. But Davis was never a businessman and unfortunately this venture eventually failed. And also towards the end of his life, Davis of course was a member of parliament and he always took an opportunity to raise issues on labor exploitation throughout the empire and especially in India. And his last years, a bit like Fenianism, you know, they're kind of characterized by David throwing himself full tilt into the labor movement. And he campaigned hard for labor candidates at the 1906 election, which was very successful by the way, they went from two MPs to 29. And he attended labor celebrations in London that spring but he was in declining health at that stage and, and unfortunately he was to die in May, 1906. But no more than, I suppose, Fenianism, you know, a very extensive engagement with socialism and trade unionism throughout his life. And I think as the thing about David was he always viewed these things in a global context. He was never kind of parochial uh, with his work or with his views in any way. So, I suppose if we if we turn our attention to Celtic, we can see that Davis had built up a relationship, of course, with Scotland over many years. He was a frequent visitor, and by the time Celtic was formed, he was a well-known Fenian and land agitator. And of course, we we mentioned his two major tours and his strong support for the crofters. Now they were looking for rent reductions as well, you know, in a similar manner to the Irish tenant farmers. And Davis undertook a tour of the Highlands in 1887, and he spoke from the balcony of a hotel, the Poor Tree Hotel on the Isle of Skye, which had been a center of the agitation. I've never been, but I believe there's a plaque on the hotel wall, which commemorates that visit. And of course, as we said, he often spoke at working class events in urban areas in Scotland. I think in particular, there was one enormous socialist rally in Glasgow City Hall in March, 1888. So I think it's fair to say David supported all Irish organizations in Glasgow, be they political, national or recreational. And at Celtic's annual general meeting in 1889, Mr. Joseph Shocknessy, who was a local trade unionist and solicitor, well, he proposed that Michael Davis be appointed a patron and this motion was passed to great acclaim. And of course he had much in common with the founding fathers. They were by and large the children of those who had fled the great hunger in Ireland. So by this stage, Davis was already an admirer of the club 
But I think this event marked his formal attachment to Celtic. And of course, it's well known that when Celtic moved to their new ground in 1892, Michael Davis was invited to lay the sod, the first sod in the centre circle. And a sod of turf was brought over from County Donegal for the event. And Davis duly done the honours with the help of a special ceremonial silver spade provided by the club. And a large banner with the words Cade Nila Falcha was flown. Cade Nila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes. And T.G. Sullivan, who was an Irish nationalist, sang the song God Save Ireland. And this was a tribute to the Manchester Martyrs, three Fenians uh, who were executed in Manchester in 1867. They had killed a policeman while rescuing two Fenians from a prison van. Now, David said in his speech, I hope Celtic have much prosperity in their new ground. No Saxon will dare cross this side of Irish turf without sustaining defeat. David, he kicked off the match that was on that day. Celtic were playing Clyde. And at the end of the game, David attended a political rally in Glasgow. But he returned that night to Pinkerton's restaurant in Bridgeton, and he accepted the Glasgow Cup trophy on behalf of the club. And later, Celtic president John Glass and the players invited Michael Davis into a side room, and he was presented with a medal, the same as the one the players had received for winning the Glasgow Cup. And in presenting the medal, John Glass is reported to have said, I hope you accept this badge as proof of the great esteem you are held in as an Irish patriot. There is no man who deserves more respect than a man who spends his life in his country's cause. And on acceptance, Davis, he thanked the club sincerely, saying he would always cherish it and wear it with pride. But would you believe, I suppose, to a mixture of maybe anger and amusement, the sod that Davis had laid was stolen shortly afterwards, which caused great debate in Glasgow and beyond. And a song appeared in a local paper at the time and I'll just read one verse from it. The curse of Cromwell blast the hand that stole the sod that Michael cut. May all his praises turn to sand, the crawling, thieving scut. So, so there you go. Now, it's also believed by some that the name Celtic may have originated with Davis because when he toured Scotland in 1887, the newspapers referred to him as the tribune of the Celtic race or the Celtic race. And Davis himself, of course, would have seen this as a word or a name that would have embraced, I suppose, Irish and Scottish heritage. But Michael Davis, he continued his relationship with Celtic. Uh, in November 1894, he was back at Celtic Park to see Celtic play Queen's Park. And prior to the game, Davis, his son, Michael Jr., and the club president, John Glass, walked to the centre circle. Michael Jr., who was described in newspapers as wearing a Celtic cap, kicked off the game. And this game, I believe, ended in a draw. Uh, a portion of the gate receipts were given to Davis to donate to Irish causes. Now, Celtic established a very strong bond with the Land League back in Ireland. And if you look at Celtic's accounts in those early years, you will see that they provided funding for the relief of evicted tenants. They also provided money for Fenians and Land Leaguers who had fallen on hard times. 
And they often made financial contributions to funerals for those same people. And Michael Davis, you know, sometimes he wrote open letters to newspapers to thank Celtic for their generosity. And often the money sent back to Ireland allowed evicted tenants to start a new life in Glasgow or elsewhere. And I suppose to bring it up to the present day, um, you know, I think Michael Davitt's memory would still live on. I would imagine that many of the club supporters would, would share his values. And it's great that people like yourselves keep his memory alive, you know, through your podcasts. And I know you, you make banners and so on. And I think Michael Davitt's name is also noticeable in the supporters clubs, uh, the several supporters clubs who have adopted his name in their title. Uh, for example, I know Michael Davitt Celtic Supporters Club Air would be one. Uh, Michael Davitt Liverpool Celtic Supporters Club would be another. And no doubt there are other clubs as well. And by the way, I don't, I'd like here at this point to thank Paul McQuaid, who has done a lot of research on the Davitt Celtic team. And indeed, he presented a PowerPoint on it in both Glasgow and Strade and Brendan Sweeney's book, Celtic, The Early Years. Again, a lot of information there on Davis and Celtic. And at the Michael Davis Museum, we would rely on those sources to a large degree for our work in this area. So I think we mentioned there previously that Michael Davis was a member of Parliament and Michael Davis was initially elected as an MP as far back as 1882, but he was serving a prison sentence at that time. So therefore, as a, an undischarged felon, he was ineligible to take a seat. But he did become an MP proper in the early 1890s, and he represented several constituencies, I suppose most notably his native Mayo South. And of course, he looked after constituency matters and at national level, Irish independence was always on the agenda. And he concentrated though in the House of Commons on issues such as prison reform and prisoners' rights. And something very interesting happened. Michael Davis, he actually went to Dartmoor to examine prison conditions. Of course, he'd been an inmate there some 20 years previously. And the work he'd done on this particular committee was fed into legislation that was passed in the House of Commons that did in fact bring about prison reform and improve prisoners' rights. Now, he also looked for things like the eight hour working day, um, improvements in conditions for child and adult factory workers. He was on various welfare committees. For example, he was on a committee to look into the possibility of providing old age pensions but I think more than anything, the House of Commons, it gave him a kind of a global platform. And he called out injustices and exploitation of indigenous peoples throughout the empire and beyond. And he traveled to many of those countries to find out for himself exactly what the situation was. So for example, he went to Australia, New Zealand and Tasmania where he engaged with Maori and Aborigine populations. He was a frequent visitor to the United States and Russia. He was in Finland, Sweden, Norway, Belgium, Samoa, France, to name but a few. And he always, of course, viewed, you know, social justice in a global context. And, you know, Davis was a prolific writer. He wrote about half a dozen books. His best known book is The Fall of Feudalism in Ireland, which is largely autobiographical. 
I think we already mentioned his newspaper, The Labour World, which, by the way, included a column on women workers, which was very enlightened for the time. And he worked as a freelance journalist, as a foreign correspondent for, for many Irish, British and American papers. And again, always campaigning on issues of liberty and social justice. So I suppose, unsurprisingly, um, all these travels meant that he formed many international relationships and friendships and associations. So if we look briefly at a few of those, um, and the first one is Mahatma Gandhi. And we do know that Gandhi was inspired by David's movement of passive resistance in relation to the Land League. And he kind of used the Land League as a prototype to achieve Indian independence many years later and incorporated many of the tactics, including boycotting, the boycotting of, of British goods in Gandhi's case. And we think that Davis and Gandhi met in London in the 1890s because Gandhi was a young law student there at the time. David's newspaper was based there and he also became an MP at that time as well. But there is a famine memorial in Swinford County Mayo, which features images and quotes from both men. And Gandhi's grandson, Aaron, laid a wreath on Michael Davitt's grave a number of years ago. And the Michael Davitt Museum is currently in the process of being twinned with the Gandhi Museum in New Delhi. So there's a strong bond there between Ireland and India and between Davitt and Gandhi. And of course, India and Ireland were two, I suppose, constituent but reluctant parts of the British Empire during Davis and Gandhi's uh, lifetime. Now, another man, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, he, he may not be familiar to all of your listeners, but he was the first president or certainly the first provisional president of the Republic of China. And he was a socialist and Davis was an associate and advocated the Chinese cause both inside and outside the House of Commons. Dynasties ruled China at that time. And Sun Yat-sen, in fact, was banned from Hong Kong by the British and for his revolutionary activities and turned up in London. Davis was also on a committee in London in support of the Chinese Revolution. And a correspondence and friendship developed between both men. And we've got copies of letters here, in fact, in the Michael Davitt Museum. And Sun Yat-sen eventually prevailed and became the first provisional president of China. And he had invited Davis out to China, but Davis unfortunately had died by the time Sun Yat-sen became president. Now, as a freelance journalist, Michael Davit traveled to the Tula province to interview the great Russian author Leo Tolstoy in both 1904 and 1905. And he interviewed him in his rural home, which was southwest of Moscow. And Davis was interested to discover that both men shared similar views on land tenure, anti-imperialism and social reform. And Davis was also personally close, although politically different to President Theodore Roosevelt. Now, he met Roosevelt in Washington many times and they exchanged letters and gifts Roosevelt was deeply interested in Irish culture and the Irish language, and he was a great man for the outdoors and took a great interest in agricultural matters. And when Roosevelt was told of David's death, he was visibly moved and wrote a letter to David's widow, 
offering his condolences and describing him as a close personal friend. Now we've we've talked about David and David's patronage of Celtic. He was also uniquely a patron of the GAA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, and he was elected patron in 1884. And again, he wasn't passive. He, he made a contribution to a GAA rule book in the 1880s. And again, we find Michael Davis acting as a mediator in several GAA disputes that took place. And at one time, he lent the GAA £450 to keep them afloat. And again, his name is remembered um, through the various stadiums that are called after him and various GAA clubs, in fact, are named in his honour, including, I'm delighted to see, Coltbridge Davids in Glasgow itself. So David, as you can see, he had a very, very, very busy life, exceptionally busy, and it was punctuated by four prison terms as well. But maybe before we get to his untimely death, I'll just mention a few things about his family. Um, Michael had three sisters and one brother. Michael, he was the second eldest. Now, unfortunately, his brother, his name was James. He died at the age of only 21 months. Um, his sisters were named Mary, Anne and Sabina. Michael's parents, his father was Martin Davis, who was a native of the parish of Strayed. And his mother was Catherine Keelty, who was from the same general area. Now, as we said, Following their eviction, they immigrated to Lancashire. But when Michael Davitt became a prominent Fenian in the 1860s and 1870s, his entire family came under the notice of the authorities. Now, one of his sisters had already moved to Pennsylvania. So Michael just told the rest of his family, his parents and his remaining sisters to emigrate also so he could be at ease and get on with his Fenian work in England. So that is what happened. And so his parents and all his sisters lived and died in America. Now, Michael met his wife. His na her name was Mary Yore. He met her in the United States and they married in Oakland, California in 1886. And then they subsequently moved to Dublin the following year. Now, Michael himself, well, he had five children three boys and two girls. And again, there was a bit of sadness. One of his children, Kathleen, died at the age of six in 1895. His surviving daughter, Eileen, went on to be a French teacher for many decades in Dublin. Now, Michael's three sons were very, very high achievers indeed. One of his sons, Cahar, became a high court judge and was also a member of the Supreme Court in Ireland. Um, Robert became a TD, which is your equivalent of a member of parliament. And Michael Jr. was a doctor. Now, Michael's wife, uh, Mary, she died in 1934. So she outlived him by three decades, although she was considerably younger to, to begin with. And she's actually buried in the Davis plot in Glass Nevin. So Michael himself, Michael Davis, well, he died on the 30th of May, 1906. And he contracted blood poisoning following a dental procedure. But the truth of it was, he was in poor health for many years due to the harsh conditions endured in prison. Now he wanted to be buried in his native Strayed, 
unless he died in America. If he died in America, he wanted to be buried with his mother. So he died in Strayed, or he died in Dublin. So Strayed was to be his burial place. And um, he insisted, as we said before, in his final hours that he would be laid out in the Carmelite Church in Clarendon Street in Dublin, the only church that would re receive the remains of the Fenian Charles McCarthy. And this, in fact, did take place. Then his remains were taken by train to Foxford, and then he was buried behind the church, which is now the Michael Davitt Museum, on the 2nd of June, 1906. And I think as someone said on the day, his, his voice was now silent, but his ideals and values will always live on. So that brought uh, Michael's life to, to an end. John, that was brilliant. Big, big thanks, mate, for, for taking the time to come on and do that. It was a... Uh, as Tony had sort of touched on earlier about probably a lot of you know people tuning in tonight and a lot of the support, obviously knowing who Michael David was and, and what yeah. he'd done and the sort of basic stuff about laying the, the turf and the sort of grass, but the detail and the, the knowledge and the history that you've got, uh, that was really, really interesting, mate, to listen in. Uh, so Tony, just questions, mate, I think just kind of open up to everybody that's, that's logged on tonight. Have you got in your cellmate to come in with? Well, I was just, uh, again, thanks very much, John, for speaking to us and taking the time to do that. I think the the background and the history you gave a David, it, it probably gave a, a good mindset to the politics of the, the people involved with Celtic at the time. Because if, if they've chosen a man like Michael David, who's been involved in the Fenians and the Land League, cho chosen him to be our was a archbishop, and um, then I think it kind of shows you a good insight into the way they were as well, of how politically inclined they were. Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, maybe Michael Davis, in many ways, was was the obvious choice um, because he he had that lived experience that the founding fathers had. I think he could, you know, he could he could you know resonate with you know what they had gone through. Uh, because he had done something similar himself. And, you know, he, as we said, he was a man who spent a lot of time in Scotland, in the Irish community, a lot of time in Glasgow. Um, I think there was great respect for him uh, in the Irish community in Glasgow. So I think he was a good fit for, for the club at that particular time. Uh, definitely, Tony, yeah. John, can I just come in with a wee quick one for myself, mate, that before we've got a couple coming in here, but you'd mentioned when you were speaking about the Land League as yeah. an organisation, you'd mentioned how that sort of paved the way to the uprising and the, the revolution. And then the Women's Land the Land League, a lot of them went on, you know, become members of Cumna Band in different organisations. Could you just maybe touch on that a wee bit more? Uh, you know, how that came about and how the actual one league was played a big part in the 1916. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, I think owning your own land is tangible evidence of independence. Um, we had, a, I suppose, a bizarre situation here where the ordinary Irish people didn't own their own land. And we had five million people who were renting small, uneconomic plots but I think once the land was restored to the people, 
it gave them the confidence to take the next steps towards independence. And in the following decades, we had what we call a cultural revival here in Ireland. And there was a great revival. For example, the GAA, our Indigenous Games, were founded in 1884. There was a great revival as well in, in terms of Irish traditions and song. The Irish language was another thing. They, they all came to the fore. There was a great pride in being Irish. And of course, the, the Fenians, I suppose, infiltrated a lot of these organizations as well and took up leadership positions in them. So, you know, I, I think it was a, an incremental process, but um, I, I think the, the Land League, which was operating in the, in the 1880s, was an important step along the way, along the road to independence. And I think it's kind of been acknowledged now by most historians. I think you mentioned the, the, the ladies there as well. And um, I think as I mentioned, and, and as you alluded to yourself, uh, women have often been written out of history. And they played a tremendous role in, in, the, uh, in the land movement, um, you know, to, to, as I said, to keep the show on the road while the men were in prison. Uh, they've done tremendous work. Uh, one of the jobs they've done, by the way, was they built temporary houses for families who were evicted. So if you had a series of evictions taking place in a village, they would put up a temporary house almost overnight that might house four or five families. And that might prevail for a number of weeks. And then there might be an eviction 50 miles away. So they could take it down, put it on a train and reassemble it somewhere else. So, you know, and they distributed relief and food to evicted tenants as well. And, um, you know, as I said, a lot of them went on to play prominent roles in the independence movement. Um, some of them in coming them on, uh, which will be, I suppose, an auxiliary to the, to the volunteers uh, leading up to 1916. So, yeah, I think, I think the Ladies' Land League is, is important, a uh, constituent part of the land story, but also the independence story. John C, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you were saying as well about when he laid the, the sword in the centre circle. Yes. God Save, God Save Ireland was sung, and that was, it was by, is it T.D. Sullivan? Is that who it was that wrote that? Yes, T.D. Sullivan. He, he had written that, he composed that song himself, I believe, and uh, and he sung it apparently on the day, which was a, a tribute to the Manchester Martyrs, uh, which, which happened in, in the 1860s, yeah. Again, I think that's quite poignant for kind of people who's interested in Celtic and Republican politics. Sullivan also wrote a nation once again as well for, for Celtic, for the first song to ever be sung at our new stadium, to be a song about Manchester Martyr to involved in a breakout for the Killing a police officer. It's, I think it's uh, something that'd be quite hard to believe for a lot of people. I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no doubt it is. Um, it's, um, I suppose, it's all part of of Irish history, isn't it? And um, and uh, I suppose of the history of of Michael Davis and 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 indeed of of Celtic. Um, I mean. I suppose Fenianism emerged because, you know, the conditions were there for it to emerge. You know, there was such injustice and um, other methods weren't, weren't working and so on and so forth. So, 
yeah, the Manchester Martyrs, and um, that would be a song we would have been taught at school when I was was a child. Um, you don't hear that song too much today, God Save Ireland, but um, uh, it was a song that um, was prevalent when I was a child uh, in, in the 1970s. But um, yeah, it's, it's an important, I suppose, part of, of the whole tradition. John, we've got a wee one just came in in the chat uh, from Eamon. He's asking that you said Joe Shaughnessy put David forward as patron of the club. Was this due to his friendships in Glasgow or was it due to what he'd accomplished in Ireland? Was it, you know, a, a personal or a political appointment? Um, I, I would imagine it was more to do with um, David's career and his achievements, you know, at that stage. He, he was someone that everyone would have held in high esteem. Um, now, David did have some contact contacts in Glasgow. There was a man called John Ferguson, who was a very close friend of David's. And he was actually a Belfast Presbyterian, I believe, who had moved to Scotland. But he was involved in every Irish organisation. I think he's often been described as Michael David's eyes and ears um, in Scotland. But, but to go back to your question, I, I think it'd be more that Davis was recognised, you know, his work as a Fenian and a land agitator uh, and his work for the, in the Irish community. I think, I think that would be the, the reason, rather than him having close friendships with some of the founding fathers themselves, although he does appear to have known, you know, John Glass pretty well. Um, they met on, on, on many occasions. The thing about Davis was... Um, he was always, he was never any, in any one place too long. And I suppose if you had a criticism of Michael Davitt, you'd say he tried to do too much. And he, you know, and um, like he was always traveling all over the world. And maybe he spread himself too thin at, at times. But I, I think in fairness, he, he did spend a lot of time in, in, in Scotland. Uh, I'm not quite sure how well he knew some of, of these founding fathers, but... Um, they obviously held him in, in high regard anyway. John, see, just to give everybody a wee sort of background on yourself, you know, and your position within the museum and maybe a little bit of information about the museum, where it's, you know, situated now and how long it's been, as Tony had sort of touched on earlier, how long it's been, how long it's been going, sorry. Yeah, well, I was actually born here in the village of Strait, so we were, you know, we were brought up on, on Michael Davis. And uh, I always had an interest in history. Indeed, my, my father has been on the governing body of the Michael Davitt Museum for about 40 years. And my two sisters worked here as tour guides. So we, we have a strong uh, relationship with the museum. The museum was initially set up in the early 1980s and it was in the local community center in a small room at the beginning. But as time went on and the governing body assembled more and more exhibits and there was more and more interest in Michael Davis, it was felt that a larger, more suitable setting was required. And as luck would have it, the church that Michael Davis was baptised in was available here in the centre of the village. And I think at the time, you know, government grants were applied for and the church was renovated and it's now a fantastic and a very apt space for the Michael David collection. 
So we've been up here at this venue since, I think it was since the year 2001 for about 20 years. I'm, I've been with the David Museum since 2013. So we were open, in fact, from next week, we're going to be open seven days per week. Um, and that will prevail until next October. Then we'll go back to six days per week. But we're, we're open to the public um, extensively and we welcome all visitors of course um, and in particular uh, Celtic supporters. We do get a lot of Celtic supporters here anyway. Um, sometimes we find when Celtic win games there's, there's a, a David statue outside we find hats and scarves on us when we come in in the morning and stuff like that which is quite interesting and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice museum and it, it details all the themes that I've mentioned there. Also on the site, we've actually got a 13th century um, friary as well. Um, which it, and the friary is actually, it's, it's stuck on to the museum itself. So the museum was part of the friary complex. The, the museum was actually, we call it a pre-penal church. There was a church here going back to the time of even before the penal laws. So um, there's been a church here for a very, very long time. Michael Davis, of course, was born in the village. And when our visitors are here, we can, he was just born on a hill overlooking the church, which is very, I suppose, picturesque. And, he, and his grave then, of course, is, is behind the museum as well. So we get, I suppose, I'd say 70, 80% of our visitors are from from, from we say the island of Ireland and England, Scotland and Wales. And then we get a, a smattering of visitors from uh, all over the world. Um, I suppose we get a lot from America as well, Australia, but also from continental Europe. And um, we hold various events here as well. We have lectures and talks. Um, usually we hope to start them again soon, maybe on a monthly basis. And it's a kind of a community hub for the, for the entire community to meet as well. So it's, um, it's a busy place um, and it's kind of growing and expanding all the time. So, which is nice to see. I think uh, I've just got one more. So maybe obviously we're on, I keep me too long, mate. Um, I've got one more come in again from Eamon. He's asking any book recommendations on, you know, David's life and his connection with Celtic, if you get any sort of books you would recommend? Um, well, we've, we've got various autobiographies, um, by, sorry, biographies here on David, but I suppose the be if you're thinking about David and Celtic, the best book is the one from, I think I mentioned it there, Brendan Sweeney's book, Celtic, the Early Years. I think it covers... Um, from Celtic's inception up until about 89, up until maybe the first five, ten years anyway, something like that. Um, so that's the best um, book on Davos. And it goes through um, Davos becoming the patron and becoming uh, and laying the sod in quite a bit of detail. In fact, I would have borrowed quite a bit of information um, from Brendan's book there in what I, I said this evening. Um, now you will get, you know, you get various um, books on Celtic, and you might get chapters on Michael Davis and so on um, here and there uh, as well. But we have, if anyone wants to contact me, by the way, at the museum, um, please feel free to do so, and I, I can recommend books um, on Davis in general. 
Um, I'm just trying to think now offhand, um, can I think of another book? Um, I, I can't think of a complete book on Davos and Celtic. I mean, you will, you will, it's more about Davos' life and you'll get a bit about Celtic. But as I said, if anyone wants to contact me, I'll, I'll check with our librarian here to see if there's anything in that regard. That's brilliant, John. I think we'll, uh, Tony, all good with you, mate. We'll maybe just wrap up there. If anybody's not getting anything else, we can. I definitely like it. Just that when you were saying me, I'm setting up the, the land league, John, and yes. there were various branches in Ireland and in Scotland as well. Yeah. I think it's kind of important for people to know that, like, the, the people involved with Celtic at the time, we are talking about being friendly with John Glass. He was a member of the Irish National League. Um, James yeah. Quillen was, I think, William McKillop was an Irish nationalist MP. Um, Pat Welsh, who was involved, yeah. was a Fenian. Um, there's a man, Hugh Murphy, as well, who was very involved in Irish nationalist politics in Glasgow and Scotland as well. So I think I think it's kind of fair to say that there's a lot of people who was involved in the early years of Celtic who were Irish National League or Irish National Foresters as well. Yeah. And I think that was how they probably picked David and how that's kind of shaped the politics that we maybe try to have people to remember today. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Tony. Um, I think, as, as, as we said earlier, Davis, I think he was interested in, whether it was political or national or recreational, you know, any Irish organisation, I suppose, in Glasgow, he would, he would be interested in supporting us. And very interesting, those names you mentioned there. Um, I think Pat Welch was he, has he Leitrim connections, County Leitrim, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, yeah, I hope to, indeed, um, read more about these founding fathers myself uh, as time goes on. Um, because they all have very interesting stories to tell. There's no doubt about that. Super. So, John, just again, Afi, all the boys that are, and the girls, sorry, that are in tonight, uh, big, big thanks, mate, for taking the, the time to come on and, and speak with us. It was a cracking, cracking listen. Uh, and I, when the podcast does go out eventually, a big thanks to everybody for tuning in again. So, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it.